0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning. We, uh, we start a new series this morning uh, called uh, The First Christmas Carols. The first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke read a little bit like a, uh, a musical Everybody's breaking into song it sings. All of the prospect of this little baby in a manger who is going to come and change the world. And there are the four of these songs in Luke's gospel in those first few chapters. There's uh, Mary's Magnificat, Zachariah's Benedictus, the angel's Gloria, and Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. And one scholar identifies these Christmas carols as the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the early Christian hymns. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of these. We're going to look at Mary's song, which is called the Magnificat. And that term, Magnificat, comes from the Latin translation of the first words of the song, Magnificat anime mea dominum, or my soul magnifies the Lord. But before we get into the song itself, let me read to you what happens just before with the visit of the angel Gabriel to Mary. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to page 855, And if you uh, want to follow along, it's printed in your bulletin as well. I'm just going to read from Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we'll stop there for now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Oh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep this Advent season well. Would you help us to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ? Make us eager, even this morning, to hear your word, to receive your word, to be joyful in prayer, all as we uh, look forward to the celebration of the feast of Christmas. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to look at this morning as we think about this passage is the, the message of the angel. Gabriel comes to Mary with an announcement. Verse 28, Mary, the Lord is with you. You are greatly favored by God. Verse 29, now Mary's not, not so sure about this, right? Why is this message coming to me, she thinks, which is an understandable reaction. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember those uh, ed McMahon sweepstakes you guess anybody remember this right where they'd show up on the door with like a giant check and apparently you had to like write in through the mail to you know to enter the sweepstakes and and when they would win right they'd show up knock on the door and they'd have the uh, the, the giant check to hand you right there for or whatever it was, and, uh, you know, when you see these uh, gifts given, this uh, big check given, it's always people very happy, but I I found out later, uh, I don't know, I was watching flipping through channels, I found out later that that happy receiving of the check was almost never the first take, because when people would knock on the door, usually what you would see was somebody sort of looking through the shade and then pretending they weren't home. Or if they did know that you were there saying, we don't want any, go away, you know. And then Ed McMahon saying, we, we, we have money for you. And they're like, no, get out of here, you know, that kind of thing. Well, the point being, right, it was, it was hard to take. It was hard to receive. It was hard to believe that something so good, that this good news could come to our door. Well, same with Mary. She thinks, why is the angel coming to me? Verse 30, Gabriel reassures her. Do not be afraid, he says. And then in verse 31 and 32, he tells her, the angel tells her that she will conceive and bear a son. You should call him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And that's what he's come in the world to do. He'll be great, the angel says. He'll be full of power and authority. He'll be the son of God, the son of the Most High. He'll be divine and he'll reign forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, this all sounds great. But right away, Mary points out a problem with this whole plan. Verse 34, how will this be? For I am a virgin. Central to the Christmas story is the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. Or actually, I should say the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ. He was born just like anybody else, I guess. That wasn't as miraculous. It was the conception. Mary was a virgin when she conceived, which, as you know, is not the typical way babies are made, right? Now, there are some who dismiss this story right from the start as a kind of myth because of a dominant assumption of modern Western culture. Some call this MCH, miracles can't happen. Now, it's less prevalent today than maybe it was 15 or 20 years when I started in ministry, but it's still there as a reason to dismiss the Christian story more broadly and the Christmas story in particular for many people There are some who say, you know, I I do believe in God, but miracles can't happen. But I push back on that a little bit, right? That doesn't really work, because if you believe in a God who creates the universe, then there should be nothing inherent in your worldview that would rule out the miraculous. That is, even if you're dubious about some specific claims of miraculous activity, the possibility of God intervening miraculously in the world should be there, if you believe, that God exists at all. But what if you're like, all right, I don't believe in God and miracles can't happen. Well, I can't deal with this too much in depth this morning, but let me just even push back on that idea for a moment. What makes you so sure that miracles can't happen? After all, you've heard of Quantum mechanics, you've heard of chaos theory. We know that the atomic and subatomic levels, uh, the so-called laws of nature, don't work, and therefore the universe is much more open than we have previously thought. And perhaps you say, "Well, well, that's only because we don't know how those laws work at those levels. But then the question still comes, well, how do you know that? That's a leap of faith too, right? It's not a provable statement. Rather, it's a dogmatic assertion. Now, none of this proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that any given miracle is true. But I'd love you to consider at least the possibility of the miraculous. And this morning, I want you to consider the possibility of one claim to the miraculous in particular. The conception of Jesus Christ. Because Christmas really is caught up with this idea of the miraculous conception of Jesus. Because Christmas is about the incarnation. To incarnate means to embody or to take on flesh. And the Bible teaches that the great hope of the world and the great hope for each of us as individuals is that God has not left us alone, but rather he has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Christmas tells us that God comes into the world in a remarkable way. He was born of a virgin. The virgin birth is not new to the New Testament, rather it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3 is three chapter 3, verse 15, is what theologians sometimes call the proto-evangelion or the first gospel. Speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then God goes on to promise that the Savior will come to rescue his people and this is strange though because as you read genesis in in patriarchal societies and throughout the rest of the bible in general children are always told as being born from the line of their father but here in this first gospel the savior's father is not mentioned at all implying the father would not be of this earth later god raises up a prophet named isaiah who speaks even more clearly about the birth "...of the Messiah to come. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah argues that people will not miss the coming of the Savior because his mother will be a virgin. And the gospel writer Matthew quotes this verse from Isaiah 7 and specifically designates it to Jesus. He will be born of a virgin... He shall be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. Now, whereas the Old Testament whispers this promise, the New Testament proclaims it loudly, and no more so than in Luke chapter 1, our chapter this morning. Verse 27, the Gabriel, the angel, is sent to a virgin, it says, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary herself says, how will this be since I am a virgin? In Greek, literally, it reads, how will this be since I have not known a man? The angel has to explain to Mary that this conception will be a miracle in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And because it is so miraculous, Gabriel adds, for nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 37. The Gospel of Matthew also tells this same story, but not from Mary's perspective, but from Joseph's perspective. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. An angel came to Joseph to persuade him not to divorce Mary. She had not been unfaithful, the angel declared, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew reiterates the miraculous conception by adding, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So the New Testament very clearly teaches that Mary was a virgin, and that Jesus was conceived solely through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament prophesies this. The New Testament clearly teaches it. But we should also note that uh, early Christians almost universally believed this. One historian writes, Apart from the Ebionites and a few Gnostic sects, no body of Christians in early times is known to have existed who did not accept as part of their faith the birth of Jesus from the Virgin Mary. This is why then the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed both include a statement about Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But really, still, this leaves us with the question, does any of this matter? I mean, we have to move on here, but the question is, is does this belief, does this doctrine have any real importance for Christians? Uh, Rob Bell Wrote a book uh, a few years ago, a really popular book uh, called Velvet Elvis, sold like a billion copies. All right, that's a little extreme, but it sold a lot of copies. But one of the things that he says in the book is that this belief in the virgin birth, it, it's not really a big deal. And, and ultimately, if you can't stomach it, not a big thing, right? It's not crucial to Christianity. He says you can love and follow Jesus whether or not he was born of a virgin, and so therefore, right? This should be considered kind of an optional idea. He's wrong, though, because if you pull this idea out, the whole story starts to change pretty dramatically. If you pull this idea of the miraculous conception of Jesus out, that makes Mary into a liar, right? She's inventing a story to cover up for her promiscuity, Jesus didn't correct her, allowing people to go on believing this miraculous story of his birth, which makes him, at the very least, deceptive, if not an outright liar himself. It means the Old Testament texts were wrong, or at least they didn't have much to do with Jesus in particular. And it makes the gospel writers wrong in how they apply those Old Testament stories to Jesus, which should make you then wonder what else the New Testament writers got wrong. You see, the details of Christmas are not just an add-on, but they are central, crucial to the whole gospel story. And what Gabriel announces here is important in understanding this whole thing. All right, so first the angel's message. But really what I want to hone in on this morning is Mary's response to this and what it has to teach us. Because Mary is a great example for us as we attempt to love and to serve God and to devote our lives to him. Mary is a picture of how God works with us. She was a recipient of God's grace. Look at verse 28. Greetings, the angel says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And the word favor there in Greek is the same word for grace. The Latin translation uh, renders it full of grace. Mary has been given grace by God. Gabriel comes to tell her that God has chosen her for something very special. But God could have chosen somebody else. There were other teenage virgins in Palestine, which would make a great band name, by the way. I called it on that one. Uh, But God chose Mary by his own initiative. She didn't do something to warrant God's blessing. He simply chose her out of his goodness. And again, this is a picture of how God works with us. If you are a Christian, you have been a recipient of God's grace. Like Mary, you did not deserve it. But he's given his grace to you. And while Mary is not a dispenser of grace, that's the Lord's job, she's an amazing example of how we should receive it. Verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In the face of God's favor, Mary responds with humility and trust. Just like us, you have to remember, Mary had a plan for her life, right? She's excited. She's just gotten engaged. She's going to marry Joseph. When the angel visits her, she's probably planning the wedding. She's filling out the registry. She's narrowing the guest list. And then God sends this angel into her life, and everything changes from there on. Mary had a script, but God broke in to say, I'm writing your story in a very different way. You need to think for a second. Have you thought about how extraordinary her faith is here? She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Some translations have it, I'm a handmaiden of the Lord. In other words, I am the lowest servant. Mary is saying, you are God, I am not. Do with me as you wish. challenge, I think, of Mary to all of us is, do we respond that way when our plans don't work out, when... God replaces our idea of what our life should look like with something else entirely. And then she says, let it be to me according to your word. At this point, she couldn't know how her life would change in the coming months and years. She didn't know exactly that people were going to call her a whore and a tramp, as they did in John chapter Uh, 8. She didn't know that her son would be beaten and executed by the people who claimed to love him. But she did know that she just wanted a quiet life. She just wanted to marry Joseph. She wanted a comfortable, normal life. In this moment, though, everything that she thought she knew about her life began to change. Everything she wanted was going to slip through her fingers. And yet she responds, let it be to me according to your word. Mary did not lose Joseph here, though she almost did. He was going to quietly divorce her. It took an angel stepping in to convince him that Mary had not been lying about her pregnancy. She hadn't been unfaithful. But when she's responding here in our text to the angel's message, she didn't know how Joseph would react. She might very well have thought it was likely he would leave her. Let it be to me according to your word. I think there's enough right there to challenge all of us throughout this Advent season, to apply that to our whole lives? Let it be to me according to your word. When God doesn't bless your agenda and in fact changes it completely, can you say, let it be to me according to your word? When God takes something away or takes someone away, can you say, as hard as it is, even through tears, let it be to me According to your word, when God takes away your respectable, carefully laid plans and sends you on a new mission, something crazy or terrifying or unknown, can you say, even with trembling knees, let it be to me, according to your word. Mary had to sacrifice the idol of marriage. She had to sacrifice her reputation. She had to sacrifice the possibility of a comfortable life in order to respond. Let it be to me according to your word may we have faith like hers but then finally this morning let's think about the song itself that she sings we've read it a couple of times already this morning we're going to sing it in a moment but it starts in verse 46 mary said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior With good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, if you wonder how Mary could compose a song like this, the first answer to that question is that Mary knew her Bible very, very well. Her song sounds like many of the songs in the Old Testament. In fact, it bears a, a really close resemblance to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But not only that text, the Magnificat either quotes from or alludes to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Mary virtually crams the whole of the Old Testament into this song. And she could do this because the words of Scripture were written on her heart. She was a woman of the Word. She internalized it, listened to it, pondered it, absorbed it. So much so that when she went to the Lord in prayer, it was Scripture that poured out from her mouth. And it's not too early to think about New Year's resolutions, but as you're looking ahead, how will you engage with God's Word Not just in the Advent season, but even look into the year ahead. How will you engage with God's word? How will you ponder it, meditate it, hide it in your heart, absorb it? She can write this song because she was absorbed in the scriptures. But secondly, take note of of when Mary sings this song. We didn't read it, but after the angel comes to Mary, she kind of takes off to go visit her relative Elizabeth. Gabriel said that Elizabeth also was pregnant miraculously, uh, not as a teenage virgin, but as a older woman past childbearing years. And so Mary takes off to visit uh, Elizabeth right away. It's a 90-mile journey. No record that anybody went with her. So you can imagine this young woman heading off on a long journey, several days, a big journey, right? More complicated than an Uber ride. This is a big undertaking. But when she gets there, she's greeted by Elizabeth. And the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps with joy. That's, of course, John the Baptist. Elizabeth, the text tells us, is full of the Holy Spirit. And she believes Mary's story. And she says to Mary, blessed are you among women. And who am I, Elizabeth says, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Elizabeth knows that the baby is the Lord. She's saying the Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah is in my house. And it's after this experience with Elizabeth that Mary then goes and sings this song. And the point is, I think, that it's often in community that we get clarity about who God is and about what he's doing in our lives. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. I can testify to this personally. You know, there are a lot of times on a Sunday morning that I feel flat and dry. And then I get in here, right, even if I'm in a bad mood all morning long. I get in here with you all, and I hear you sing, and I, with you, sit under the reading of Scripture. We come to communion together. I watch you come to communion, and it nourishes my soul. Reminds me of the significance of what we're doing, of what we believe. It reminds me of the truth of this and how it can change our lives together. And if you've struggled in your faith in this last year, and maybe at least part of that is the separation that we experienced in the pandemic, at least one of the reasons why, perhaps, it's in community that we get Jesus. How often have you been in a a small group and heard someone else's story, and then all of a sudden you get some clarity about the way God might be working in your own life. How often do you hear somebody share an insight and you think, oh, that's it? I didn't see that before. I should have thought that before, but I just didn't see it until they said it. Point being, Mary didn't sit under a tree by herself and contemplate the message of the angel. Instead, she runs for community. It's in her time with Elizabeth, she got clarity, she got encouragement. Maybe your application this morning is that you need to run to community, run to a small group, run to a Bible study. And also, just note here, too, this was an intergenerational friendship. Mary was a teenager, Elizabeth was over 60. How good and helpful it can be to have friendships that span different stages of life married and single, kids and no kids, children and adults early uh, or, or midlife and, and, and later life. Note also how Mary sings this song too. She sings with great passion and thanksgiving. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And what, what do you do with a magnifying glass, right? It makes something bigger. And that's what Mary is doing here. She's calling attention to what God has done for her. She's spotlighting it. She's calling it out. She's making it big. She's magnifying What God has done for her. She says my spirit rejoices in the Lord. In other words she's not cold and clinical. She enjoys God. She's expressing her love for him. She calls God my savior. For he's looked on the humblest state of his servant. Mary's passion. Her thanksgiving at least in part. Is driven by her recognition. That she's in need of a savior. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent his last Christmas in prison in Flossenburg. He was a German pastor. He was part of the resistance in uh, resistance to the Nazis in Germany during World War II. He was imprisoned because he was part of the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and eventually he was executed at Flossenburg. He was hung with piano wire. We have a lot of his writings, though, from his time there in prison. And it's collected in at least one of the volumes, is letters and papers in prison. But one of the things that he says there during that last Advent season that he had, he wrote to a friend and he said that he was learning more about Christmas than ever before because of his time in prison. And he wrote this, he said, Because a prisoner knows you can never get out on your own, you know that you need a rescue. That's teaching me about Christmas. That's the point of Christmas. You can't get out on your own. You need a rescue. Mary magnifies the Lord with passion and thanksgiving. And then finally, just note the main content of this song. Verse 52. She says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's saying the wind of God's grace will reach the unexpected. And that same wind, though, can blow right over the proud and the arrogant and the mighty. The wind can send you sailing, you know, right? Sailing on to the promised land. But the same wind can turn your boat over, can capsize the whole thing. And Martin Luther put it this way. Mary's song is about the great works and deeds of God. It's for the strengthening of our faith for the comforting of all those of low degree, and for the terrifying of the mighty ones of earth. We are to let him serve this threefold purpose in our life, but Mary sang it not for herself alone, but for us all to sing it after her. Mary's song comforts us with the promise that God can lift us up when we're low and also humbles our pride, obliterates any smugness we may have in our heart when we're high. Mary's words, in other words, can do some sanctifying work for you too. And it can teach us to sing a Magnificat of our own, where we can call attention to the great things that God has done for us. We can magnify his grace in our lives. And in particular in this season, we can magnify the mighty deeds that he's done for our salvation, particularly in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Mary's son. So let's pray together and then we're going to sing. Uh, some words based on the Magnificat together as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. So would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for this song and for the example of Mary's faith. May we, like her, be able to sing, let it be to me according to your word. May we experience the sanctifying work of Mary's intentions, of her song. Would you humble the proud and you exalt the humble? And would you help us indeed to magnify you and give thanks for the great things that you have done for us, most particularly in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.